Hi, this is Dr. Ziegenbein, your favorite rheumatologist and fibromyalgia expert coach. Fibromyalgia has the capacity to rule and even ruin your life. I am here to show you how to stand up to it, how to be your fibromyalgia boss once and for all. Hello, everyone. So today I'm presenting the part two of my interview with Dr. Claw, the leading researcher on fibromyalgia and chronic pain from University of Michigan. In the first part of my interview, uh, we discussed how the functional brain MRIs revolutionized the way pain is classified and how they contributed to validation of the pain and suffering of the patients with fibromyalgia. We talked about approaches to pain and we even addressed the pain reprocessing therapy. And in today's episode, we talk about the rest. We talk about opioids, THC, CBD, and many other things. And I hope you enjoy it. So I'm sure some of my patients and clients will want to know about opioids, staying away from them. Can you briefly, I understand the reasons, but can you briefly describe the kind of the scientific summary of why we stay away from opioids in treating fibromyalgia? So there's just two facts that I'll give you that I don't think most people know. The first is that if someone has chronic pain and they're taking an opioid, a chronic opioid therapy, their all-cause mortality, the risk of them dying at, for, from anything in the next year is 60 to 70% higher than if they're not taking an opioid. So we do things as a routine, like wear seat belts or things that will decrease all-cause mortality by, in any of us individually, like by a half a percent. Uh, that like a 60, 70% increase, people think that the only problem associated with opioids is opioid overdose. They cause higher rates of suicide, higher rates of motor traffic accidents, higher rates of falls. And that's why a lot of people on opioids die that there's a surprise if there these are really dangerous drugs and there never were really any studies in two weeks i'm going to be in the state of florida testifying against the opioid manufacturers and saying that there never were any studies suggesting these ever worked in chronic pain this never this was always a bad idea the last thing though is that we've done studies using pet imaging which can you can put specific ligands on a pet tracer and look, and we've used this high, highly potent opioid carfentanil, which is the elephant tranquilizer that's even much more powerful than fentanyl, to do pet imaging in fibromyalgia, to look at what the body's own internal opioid system looks like in people with fibromyalgia. And what it looks like is that people with conditions like fibromyalgia are releasing a lot of their own internal opioids, their endorphins and enkephalins, and that's causing what we scientifically have known is called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. If you give a mouse or a rat or a human a repeated doses of an opioid, they get more pain-sensitive. So mm -hmm. we actually think that over-release of someone's own internal opioids, endorphins and enkephalins, contributes to the pathogenesis of fibromyalgia. And we think that's why low-dose naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker, can be used to treat fibromyalgia. So that's why it's a particularly cautionary tale about using opioids for this kind of pain that's coming from the brain. Because not only do we think it doesn't make it better, and we've shown study after study that, 
but we actually worry that it actually would make someone's fibromyalgia worse if they went on an opioid. Mm. And we see all these patients with terrible fibromyalgia that are in high doses of opioids. And everyone says, oh, the reason that they got an opioid is their fibromyalgia was so bad. And it's like, I'm not sure that's true. I actually worry that opioids are making a lot of people's pain worse and worse and worse and worse that are still on opioids for chronic pain. That's a different podcast. It's a different topic, but it's a real concern with chronic opioid therapy. I think that just because patients got a benefit really early on during opioids, and you'll appreciate this as a rheumatologist, in a editorial I wrote about this in the leading pain journal a couple years ago, I used the analogy of giving someone high doses of cortisone-like drugs. The analogy that if we give people high doses of cortisone-like drugs, like prednisone, it turns off their body's own production of those internal drugs, those internal compounds. Mm -hmm. And we know that it can take a year or two, you know, we put them on high doses of prednisone to slowly taper them off of prednisone because they go through withdrawal if we try to, and this is why we can't get anyone off opioids. They're dependent on the opioids, just like someone that you put on high doses of corticosteroids, you can't just take them off. But that doesn't mean the drug's helping them. And we really are concerned that in a lot of these people, it's harming them and it's putting them at really high risk without hardly any benefit or in fact, no benefit. Hmm. Thank you for that. Can I ask your opinion about the THC? So yeah, we have a lot of NIH funding now to study cannabinoids. And the first thing I would say is if people want to go the cannabis route, they should try CBD alone first, cannabidiol mm-hmm. alone first, because it's a lot safer than once you start adding THC. It's legal in every state in the U.S. right now. So there's two sources you can get CBD from, cannabidiol from. You can get it from cannabis which we used to call marijuana, but that's a more racist term. So we prefer the term cannabis now, or we can get it from hemp, where now the last two years, the CBD that comes from hemp is entirely legal throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. So people, the first thing that a lot of people don't know is that you can get the CBD that comes from hemp. There's really no possibility that it has any THC in it. And that doesn't have, it's not psychoactive. There's no real danger. The only problem with the CBD that comes from hemp is that some of, I wouldn't get it from the gas station. You know, I'd get it from like a reputable source, like the CBS or the Walgreens, but not the, but anyway, if you want any THC, which is the component of cannabis that is psychoactive and causes people to be high, that you have to use a really low dose, start at a low dose, because if people don't have the appropriate guidance, what they typically do is they take way too much THC and they get high, but they don't get any pain relief. They don't get any benefit. Mm-hmm. So they should be starting with a really low amount of THC because the studies suggest that a little bit of THC works better for pain than a high amount of THC. If you give someone like too much THC, they just get high, they get stoned, they don't get pain relief. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is use CBD alone first because it's safer. And then if you don't get a benefit from CBD alone, you can start with 10 to 20 milligrams of CBD twice a day and go up to hundred milligrams twice a day. And if hundred milligrams of CBD twice a day isn't working, then CBD alone probably isn't going to work. Best now to just take this orally because it's safe to take it orally for CBD. 
again, when you add THC, start with at most five milligrams orally, but even five milligrams of THC to someone who's never been exposed to cannabis could make them a little high and just start at a really low dose, go up very slowly. And if people, the best thing to do is start by taking the little bit of THC at bedtime. A lot of people that find it to be helpful, find it that it can really help them go to sleep. Start at a really low dose, go slowly and add it really just at bedtime to begin with. I have another question, but I'm not sure I want to put it on podcast. I'm just really curious about your opinion. And that is about kind of the emerging kind of school or philosophy of using ketamine and ketamine-like substances. Sure. Have you heard? Do you have of a Of course, we're doing, I, I'm, I have a mentee that's, that's proposing a study right now. We're going to be doing a study of psilocybin in fibromyalgia. We're actually quite interested in psychedelics and, 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 and you know, in general, dissociative drugs and whether they might have therapeutic potential. So I think they may very well, we're, we're you know, we're interested in looking at drugs like ketamine. It's, we're, we are looking at a number of different psychedelics, both for their use in chronic pain, as well as people in our department are looking at them as potential anesthetic agents. Mm-hmm. Would be safe. So, you know, again, we're just, but we're approaching it very scientifically. The biggest concern with all these studies is safety. And, you know, so when we're doing, for example, a study of psilocybin, which your podcast people may or may not know is the what's in magic mushrooms, Mushroom. they, these individuals will have in, incredible amounts of supportive therapy from psych, trained psychologists before, during, and after these trips, because, you know, we want to be sure that it's safe for the person and not scary for the person. If they want to, they can, you know, get in a plane and come to Ann Arbor where it's entirely legal or go to the state of Oregon where it's entirely legal and sit with a bunch of people in a dark room and do this. But we want to try to make it more medical and safe. And and we also think that therapy that the therapists eventually will do, if this works, that the therapists will eventually do, will be more sort of psychoanalytic and will take advantage of the fact that maybe you have an opportunity to get in, you know, to the person's mind after they've used one of these drugs in a way that that's hard to do if you don't do that. But Mm -hmm. if you will take advantage of that and be purposeful about the fact. And again, where we think this might be really helpful is in these individuals that have a lot of trauma and stress and things like that. You might be able to, just because of the pharmacologic help of dissociative drug or of a psychedelic, you might be able to do a little bit almost of a reboot because we know that the the way the brain works, a lot of the way the brain works is by what's called percepts. You know, like it, you remember things that have happened. The reason, I can look at you, not we're in Zoom, and know you're a female. And uh, is that, you know, we have all this prior knowledge that we, it's not like right now my eyes are trying to figure this out for the first time. And that's sort of how the nervous system works. And we worry that in people with a lot of trauma and things like that, or even just chronic pain, that if they've had chronic pain long enough, that that's just the percept, that the, the whole brain becomes used to having chronic pain. And we almost have to do a jolt people out of this with perhaps things like psychedelics or maybe eventually some of the neurostimulation techniques that we know now can be somewhat effective, you know, when they're applied to the skull, some of these things where we just, you know, stimulate brain regions. The problem with a lot of those neurostimulatory therapies is that they can't get to deep enough brain regions now. And we don't, you know, we're not going to do 
in any way full-blown electroconvulsive therapy for people with chronic pain, but we do very much feel that if we could target you know, some of these different types of either electrical or ultrasound therapies so that we could get to brain regions like the insula that where we think some of these amplifiers might be residing and try to sort of turn down, directly turn down the amplifier. There's a, a number of different ways we might be able to do this, either with, you know, different types of electrical stimulation, but that's with pain reprocessing theory, we're trying to do it, you know, like verbally and different ways like that. So. Do you think we will ever have a drug that for chronic pain or fibromyalgia in particular, that will allow for this jolt or reset that you mentioned earlier? I hope that's what psychedelics might be. Well, yeah. Okay. Or I hope that we just get smarter about subsets of people. There's going to be at least 50 different ways to get to having nosoplastic pain, and it'll be different combinations of them that people will have it. This is more mm -hmm. like hypertension you know, than it is like, you know, like cystic fibrosis, a single ge genetic mutation, a mm. single thing. It's more, it's going to be a lot of genes, a lot of things. There's, the final common pathway looks similar, but my bet is that there's going to, well, we know that already. There's a lot of different ways to get there from not getting enough sleep or not getting enough exercise or being too stressed to having certain, the wrong genes that and everything in between. Are you enrolling for that study with uh, psychedelics or you're not still yet. in the face no. of discussion? Mm -hmm. No, it's actually, I think we just got, we were in the process of getting the different regulatory approvals. You have to get all the approvals before you submit for your, your it's, uh, class one. It's, it's not, I mean, that's wrong with schedule one, schedule one mm -hmm. license. Um, and is, schedule one. Do you know how many people you will have in your study? And can out in ours, it's only going to be, it's only going to be 20 people in our study because we're doing a lot of brain imaging and we're not doing a placebo. We're not trying to give people placebo because we're not sure you could really simulate that. So in this early study, we suspect there'll be far more people that want to participate than we'll be able to accommodate. But I think that, you know, these will become, I think, more mainstream and our focus all the time will be doing this in a way that eventually could be ordered by a, you know, a physician and done in a, mm -hmm. a classic sort of safe and medical environment that we would be, we're really thinking a lot about the side-by-side -side therapy that, that should be done both for safety as well as to improve the effectiveness of these interventions, because we think those will be a big component of it. We don't think it's going to be just, you know, go pop 25 milligrams of psilocybin and you'll be fine. I was going to ask what else is on the menu as far as new things happening in your research center? What else? Uh, diet. Okay. We are really interested in diet. We published a couple articles showing a couple of years ago that individuals that were in a clinic at the, University of Michigan, where they got a highly caloric restricted diet for three months to lose weight. I saw that. They had dramatic improvements in pain, fatigue, fibromyalgia scores, sleep after 12 weeks. And in the original article, we concluded that, you know, if we could get people because and they lost weight and we, you know, said, well, there's a, you know, there's a relationship between obesity and pain and everything. We were totally wrong in subsequently th that first article prompted us to start collecting data more granularly, where we collected every week, pain, sleep, and we just published, you can pick it up in PubMed a, a month or so ago, that when people go on these very low calorie diets, the, these symptoms get better within seven to 10 days, they haven't even lost any weight yet. So we're really interested in whether caloric restriction, something way less than that, because it's that that's too hard to tolerate 900 calories a day is too hard to tolerate. But we're really interested in whether caloric restriction could be used, intermittent caloric restriction, 
could be used. We're also interested in anti-inflammatory diets. There is some low-grade inflammation in conditions like fibromyalgia. So we're pursuing a lot of things you would have probably not imagined that are not, as well as a lot of drugs that are being developed and things like that. But we're really pursuing a lot of avenues, you know, just different ways that we think we can sort of attack this. Because again, it's not a single cause and it won't have a single solution therapeutically. I was going to ask about, I think I read about, it was a review article in Lancet about chronic pain states that it mentioned that neuroinflammation is one theory that I was curious, what is the evidence suggesting that there is neuroinflammation, which I assume is inflammatory changes in the nervous system? Actually, no, that part of the problem is how people have defined neuroinflammation. And I think that they use that term a little bit loosely, especially for those of us who are trained as rheumatologists is that they'll just, you know, that if there's an inflammatory cell that's activated in the brain, like a astrocyte or a glial cell, they'll say it's, that's inflammation. And I think that's sort of overcalling um, okay. inflammation. Our glial cells and astrocytes and other cells that we used to think of in the central nervous system active in chronic pain. Yeah. But they're active in every neurologic disease. It doesn't, it might be. It doesn't enough, mean inflammation. It just means it they're mean active. Got it. Right. Got it. Because of the fact that I'm one of the only pain researchers in the world that started as a rheumatologist, I continued to rebel against the notion that conditions like fibromyalgia are primary sort of inflammatory diseases because we see so clearly in our patients with autoimmune diseases, we use these very powerful immunosuppressive drugs that do do a good job of reducing their overall inflammation. And yet the fibromyalgia is still left behind when after we've done that. So for me, what that says for sure is that if this is neuroinflammation, it's not the same kind of inflammation that we see in people with autoimmune diseases. It may be that inflammation that is driven by the nervous system is a different type of inflammation that needs a different type of treatment. But the real danger of saying neuroinflammation is there literally are people, I don't want to name names, that are giving people with conditions like fibromyalgia IV cyclophosphamide because they think they have brain inflammation or an, uh, an active, you know, inflammatory neurologic disease. So words matter and, and terms matter. And that's, again, why I think as rheumatologists, we have to stand up and say it doesn't make sense that you, you should be using drugs like corticosteroids to treat fibromyalgia because we see that, you know, that fibromyalgia is still very much there when, after we blast away with all these really powerful. And in fact, when we take away those, you know, we see it. So anyway, I just think that semantic terms matter clinically. And I just, yes, there are, there's activation of glial cells, astrocytes, things like that, but whether that means it's inflammation and that certainly doesn't necessarily mean we should be treating people with conditions like fibromyalgia with some of the drugs we should be using for conditions that are known to be autoimmune, like, you know, and I, I appreciate the explanation. There was a study last summer, I think that came out of Europe, UK or. Yeah, I know it well. Okay. I was curious about what you thought about that. So basically I think they used a serum of patients with fibromyalgia and they injected, was it rats that they injected? Yes. Yes. And then the rats inhibit showed behavior consistent with chronic pain or pain. I think that's how it went. So they that's they, exactly how it went. So I and they assumed that or they presumed, or one of their conclusion is that it's possible that the origin of pain is, I think, 
autoimmune or what we were just discussing, but what did you think about the, well, the findings? I wasn't sure how they concluded that the rats had pain, but what did you think about their conclusion about that it was autoimmune or on the basis of inflammatory process? Well, I know the article very well. I've been involved in a couple, you know, there's a charity in the UK that funded a big scientific meeting, knowing that I would be the principal opponent of this study. And I, and I am, I, I don't think it means anything about fibromyalgia, because I think that there's a number of reasons that I think this study is flawed. The primary one is that you can't actually replicate our autoimmune diseases. If you take someone with rheumatoid arthritis and you take their serum and you give it to a rat, they don't develop rheumatoid arthritis. You can't transfer any of our autoimmune diseases to a rat or a mouse simply by injecting serum or plasma. And you know that if you look at, you open our journals, there's these convoluted ways that we develop animal models of our, but it's not by just passive transfer. That's So that's right. overly simplistic. And it doesn't work for, like if diseases we know to be autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus can't be transferred, then why would you use that as a model to say, I know fibromyalgia is an autoimmune disease if it can be transferred to a rat? The other flaw with this is that a lot of the symptoms in fibromyalgia clearly come, people with fibromyalgia are just as sensitive to the sensitivity of the brightness of lights or the loudness of noises or odors as they are to pain. We and others have shown that over and over. This is sensitivity to all sensory stimuli. And most sensory stimuli come in through cranial nerves. There's no peripheral input. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that immunoglobulins can cause you to have increased sensitivity to light or to odors or to those are direct central nervous system inputs that don't have that that none of those things would be influencing at all. I really appreciate your calling out why it's not a super study. Um, it's not valid it, at all. But again, it, it's getting a lot of press and it's getting a lot yes. of, because they're very good at beating the press drum, but it's like, you know, this happens every couple of years. Someone, I have to play whack-a-mole, you know, where it, it was Chiari malformation 15 years ago was causing all fibromyalgia and mycoplasma infection. And there's always these alternate theories of fibromyalgia and they're dangerous for patients. I don't, I've been involved in doing a lot of the studies that you just have to do a study to refute it, you know, and say, well, you know, now we know for sure that isn't the problem, but, you know, it is dangerous to patients to have all these sort of theories because patients would rather that fibromyalgia was an autoimmune disease. They, that's a more appealing theory for patients. So that's going to resonate with them, but I'm sorry, it isn't. And you know, that is what it is. I'm a scientist. I look right. at, at data and evidence and, that's, we know a lot about what fibromyalgia is, and it is not an autoimmune disease. Thank you so much for your time. My last question is whether you have anything else to say to patients that might listen to the podcast, you know, who are searching for answers or searching for relief, any other advice or? I don't know if I'd give advice as much as hope. You know, I, I just think that, you know, just even some of the things that I talked to you about today, you probably had no idea that our group or others were looking into some of these different avenues. And no, <laughs> just the whole fact that I, I don't even want to name his name, but a, a leading neurologist that for the last 15 years or so at different scientific advisory board meetings, uh, someone who I really respect scientifically, but has given me like so much crap over the years at, at like fiber, there's no such thing as fibromyalgia or whatever. And I would always, again, I, I stand up to anyone. And it was really cool. A couple of days ago, we were in a meeting. He asked to meet with me with a couple of his mentees. He's doing a study in fibromyalgia now. And he said, Dan, you know, I want to tell you that 
you've been right all along. And I, I feel bad because I, and it's like, and I don't want to name his name, you know, can call him out, but it's like, you know, we're just both scientists. I've always really respected you a lot, I, but it's really cool that, and it's like, but I don't feel a sense of being right as much as I do feel a sense of good. Now you're helping study fibromyalgia too. That's like super cool. Yes. Like, well, yeah. So that's why patients should be hopeful. You know, it's like now one of the biggest skeptics in the world is now, you know, helping some of his junior people study fibromyalgia. It's come a long way. It's, it's very, I hate the term nosoplastic pain. We wrote an editorial saying it was a stupid word, but we're stuck with the word. But I, what, what word do you prefer? I like centralized because I think people know what that means. I think okay. that it is coming from the central nervous system. And I think words matter and terms matter. And, but, you know, that's the International Group of Pain Researchers had a committee that, and I'm living with nosoplastic. I'm running with nosoplastic because a new different term is really helpful. It doesn't have all the baggage of fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. There's no one that'll say nosoplastic is a bag, you know, is, a, is not a legitimate term because it's like the, the International Group of Pain Researchers literally voted as a group to say there is a third mechanism of pain. And you don't know how many of those people were like that person I just told you about. Oh, before I see. Yeah, before, like, no way this is a legitimate condition. No way this can be. There's no activation of nociceptors in the periphery. There's no, our animal models can't, you know, do this. And so it's a really big change in the field. And when people like the person I'm alluding to, you know, just, just says, you know, you're right. That's a big, so that has really strong downstream implications for patients. And it's also cool that he liked to acknowledge some like shifting of the opinion or that he might've been not right or wrong, but that basically changed his mind. I think it's really cool that, that he did that. that. That kind of shows the strength of character too. Like I said, I've he, uh, probably of all the, some of the other people that were at these same scientific advisor board meetings, I didn't think we're as good as scientists and I don't really care what they think about me. And so, but I always had a lot of respect for him as a scientist. And I, I like scientific debate. I like that's it's healthy. And so I really enjoyed debating him because I didn't think he was ever like, you know, just dismissive of me, but he was just like, I don't think you're right. You know, that's the sign of a good scientist is to say that's science. It evolves. It's like, yeah, you were right. And it's like, so that was, that's cool because and a lot of people trained in neurology were amongst the ones, believe it or not, even though that these are neurologic diseases, they were the biggest naysayers because it, it defies their explanation. A lot of our neurologists were trained to find structural lesions of the brain, not to find functional problems right. in the brain, you know? And so these conditions sort of befuddle them, even though that's the area of the body they're, they're trained in studying. So... If people want to be seen by our team, can that be done if they're out of state or you only accept patients from Michigan? And uh, yeah, Unfortunately, we have no patient care. We have, when, no, someone, asked me, mm -hmm. when, when someone asked me, you know, where to send a fibromyalgia patient at the University of Michigan, I struggle to find a oh, provider. I thought that you had a pain center that was not a research center that I thought it was uh, one. Oh, okay. So you're, you work purely with research subjects then. Right, right, right. Okay. We, we wish there were more, but, you know, a pain clinic that does the injections and all that kind of stuff, but we just don't have the care models. And I really think it's the ideal care models that either primary care physicians or if you as a rheumatologist wanted to, you know, if your lupus patient or your rheumatoid arthritis patient has comorbid nosoplastic pain, then I think it would be reasonable for you to direct that care. It's not, there isn't going to be, a, there's too many of these people 
to think that there's going to be, you're going to refer the treatment of fibromyalgia like pain because it's there's some variation of this is probably 20 30% of the population it's it's way above the rheumatology workforce it's way above the the people that are trained in pain management it's largely going to be primary care physicians i think that are managing this oh. but we have to help them a lot we have to you know yes. we really have we have to give them a lot of help and and again for some rheumatologists in some settings almost serve as the primary care physicians for the patients with autoimmune diseases and in that context i think then you might want to to try to pick up that component of their care, not hang out a shingle and say that me as the local rheumatologist is going to take care of all the fibromyalgia because you're not any better equipped or trained to do that than the primary care physicians are. So I, I think that in general, that rheumatologists should take care of comorbid fibromyalgia in their patients. And mm -hmm. if they have the capacity, see patients once to say, yes, you don't have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, you have fibromyalgia, but I'm not set up to care for you. But I, that's, I think, the optimal place for a rheumatologist in the care of these patients, not that they should in any way be caring for these patients. They, there's not nearly enough rheumatologists to even take care of people with bad autoimmune diseases. Right. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time and generosity and knowledge. And we might have a follow-up meeting in a year or two when we have more data. Okay. If you love this episode, please share with someone who can benefit from it too. I'm also available on Facebook. Uh, my personal page is Martina Lenartova, L-E-N-A-R-T-O-V-A, and my business page has name Martina Ziegenbein Coaching, Z-I-E-G-E-N-B-E-I-N. As always, I appreciate lovely reviews or any questions, concerns, or suggestions. I'm here for it. My website is www.winningatfibromyalgia.com.